Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Last year, when This Is Nashville was less than two weeks old, we aired an episode about license plate readers, or LPRs. At the time, Metro Council had passed legislation that allowed for a six-month pilot program to gauge the effectiveness of LPRs to be put into effect. Well, the pilot program has ended, and the Community Oversight Board has made a report of the findings. Communities are split on the issue. On one hand, folks think the LPRs will aid MNPD. On the other hand, people are concerned that the use of LPRs will lead to over-policing of black and brown neighborhoods. The Metro Council is taking time to review the numbers. What's in the report? Later this hour, we'll talk with the author of the report, a member of the COB, and activists about the impact the report will have on the city. But first, it's time for At Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I'm encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville and on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN. Joining me now with the look back at the past week or so is our senior producer, Steve Haru. Steve, how's it going? It's going all right. It's going all right. How about you? I'm doing all right, man. It's Thursday and it's not scorching hot outside. I'll take it. We can do it. <laughs> so what have our listeners been saying? Well, it has been a minute since we had an ad us, so we're going to start by going way back to Tuesdays. Okay. Now, I think regular listeners know we post a graphic every day to let folks know what to expect, and um, the combination of a former council member and the official county historian on a graphic that said, History of Brothels, uh, prompted Nashville Banner editor Steve Cavendish to tweet, quote, all-time graphic, no notes. <laughs> yes, that was a really interesting episode for sure. Uh, writer Rachel Louise Martin also reacted with a tweet, quote, when I give downtown history tours, it feels like every building we pass, I say, and then this became a brothel. It turns out I might should add a few more spots on my list, <laughs> yeah. end quote. Yeah, the tour is getting a little longer, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, just a little peek behind the scenes here. Rachel uh, has actually been in our studios before to be a guest on Here and Now over over in Boston, um, the magic the magic of radio as it happens with the technology we have. But yes. um, she was on to talk about her book, A Most Tolerant Little Town, about the attempt to desegregate schools out in Clinton, Clinton Tennessee before Little Rock. Mm. So you can imagine how, maybe, maybe you can imagine how that went. But yeah. uh, anyway, Election Day was last week, and that night we did something we don't usually do. That's right. We wanted to give uh, the freshest update possible on the election, so we redid the top of the show live at 7 p.m. before our nightly re-air. Yeah, um, we had WPLN political reporter Blaze Ganey and our mm-hmm. digital editor Rachel Yacovoni on, and afterward Rachel tweeted that she and Blaze appeared on This Is Nashville After Dark, <laughs> and uh, Blaze responded that maybe this should be a thing. What do you think? You know what? I'm interested in it, um, depending on how late. We're going, (laughs) you know, but speaking of things happening after dark last Friday, we had a blast talking about karaoke. One of my favorite moments was when, you know, our guest just started belting out some karaoke tunes here on air. Yeah, it was, that was amazing. It was amazing. Like some of those notes, like Celine Mm -hmm. Dion, live radio, karaoke, put those things together. Um, But uh, yeah, we got a lot of incredible feedback on that show, uh, including a request to have mayoral candidates Freddie O'Connell and Alice Rowley do karaoke. I'm, I'm 
not sure we'll get we'll get the producers on that but mm -hmm. um uh you know sometimes the call comes from inside the house and you know sometimes we put that call in the air so during the show wnxp morning host celia gregory tweeted all caps karaoke is happening on air and i'm grinning ear to ear Khalil Ekelona is not a passive bystander either, y'all. I hear those harmonies. You know, karaoke is a community event. You all have to help out every once in a while. If you know the tune, sing along, right? But we also got a tweet shouting out our guests from Brother Love who wrote, quote, Jacob has a gorgeous voice. I worked at Santa's Pub during the smoky $2 beer nights a few years ago. I ran karaoke as well as bartending. Beautiful memories. Santa is a national treasure, end quote. Nobody tell Nicolas Cage that. <laughs> Please but, don't. Anyway, uh, Tuesday was back to school day for Metro students, so we talked about school resource officers, also known as SROs. Mm -hmm. We had MNPS student Israel Perez, Assistant Principal Jonathan Bracco, Mac Hardy from the National Association of School Resource Officers, researcher Nancy Ducheno, and juvenile court judge Sheila Calloway. And we got a voice message after the show from Ryan Siegel. Let's listen to part of what he had to say. The take uh, that you guys are spinning on the SROs is 100% off base. Um, the last person that spoke basically trying to say that there was no, uh, no correlation between uh, you know, trying to, you know, slowing down crime or, or malicious acts and events or anything like that. Uh, I went to uh, Riverdale High School and way back in 1993, we had SROs. Uh, SROs were the friends of uh, a lot of folks, a lot of kids that were there. There was a lot of troubled teens that uh, relied on the SROs. So um, I don't understand where um, some of this knowledge is coming from, but SORs or SROs are not a, uh, not an enemy. Now, I, I think maybe Ryan only caught part of the show because, uh, like I just said, we had someone who trains SROs on the show mm -hmm. and Israel, the student we had on was talking about his very, very positive relationship with the SROs at his school. Um, but, uh, Ryan went on to say, uh, quote, I don't think you guys have the right kind of voice in there all the time. It does seem to be leaning one direction more than the other. Khalil, you got a chance to actually talk uh, with Ryan. I'm just curious uh, what he had to say. Yeah, I called him up. I was interested in what he had to say, and I, I called him up to, one, let him know that we appreciate that he took time out of his day to respond to that mm -hmm. episode. But then we talked a little further. I talked about my experience teaching students when mm -hmm. I was in Los Angeles. I taught kids who were at-risk teenagers, and I saw that their relationships that they had sometimes tense with police and authority figures other times really helpful right. and and really robust and, 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 and healthy for them. And so it was just really great to talk to. And I just told him that, you know, as we move on with the show, we really are attempting to have a balanced outlook at all of these very highly nuanced issues that can also be pretty charged as well. Because right. yeah. at the end of the day, the show is called This is Nashville. We're all Nashvilleans and Middle Tennesseans. So I think we're uniquely poised to have these conversations where people can just voice their opinions, and then we walk out with respect. Yeah, and then let us know afterward. I mean, that's why we have this segment. So exactly. That, so that we can respond to that feedback and, and let people know what others are thinking as they're listening. Exactly. And, you know, during that show, Judge Calloway noted that the role of SROs has changed since their surge in popularity post Columbine. They were once mostly there to discipline and arrest, but now there's a shift toward them being more of a resource. And that prompted a tweet from Jeffrey Sheehan. He says, 
I'm all, quote, I'm all in favor of adding these kinds of resources to build healthy connections between students and society. But if we began a fresh search for people to provide those supports instead of arresting children, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't start by calling the police, end mm. quote. Yeah. Uh, we also got an email from Gil Boylston, who wrote in part, I thought it was one of the best programs I've listened to at WPLN since moving to Murfreesboro last November. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated the different viewpoints that your guests brought to the program. The fear that small children have of the police presented by one of the guests really concerns me. And it's understandable. Given what's going on, it's really no surprise that police at school equals bad things are happening. Maybe this would be a time for SROs to interface more with the younger children. I believe that children are... Okay, it's not the it's not the karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> Teach them well and let them lead the way. That's awesome. Well, you know, yesterday's show wasn't karaoke either, but it did feel like a celebration. Mm -hmm. It was all about remembering life of the life of the Room of the End founder Charlie Strobel. Yeah, I I think it's for me anyway. It's it's hard to think of anyone more beloved in this town than Charlie. You know that that really definitely came across. Someone who goes by the handle January tweeted was his parishioner years ago, such a man, Father Sunshine, no better man ever, end quote. Yeah, I mean, when your nickname is Sunshine, I mean, yeah. that, that kind of says it all, but that was, that was really beautiful yesterday. Yeah, it was an honor to talk with everyone, to honor that man's life, and it's an honor to work with you. That is our senior producer, Steve Harouche. Thank you for this roundup, Steve. Of course. And don't forget to add us on Twitter and Instagram. Let's keep the comments coming. You can fill out our community survey to let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. Super easy and quick, and it helps us produce our to, to produce our shows, pardon me, with your needs and interests in mind. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll take a look at the numbers inside the COB's report on license plate readers. And what's your take on LPRs? You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. The Community Oversight Board has released its report on the six-month pilot program for license plate readers. Last year, Metro Council voted to enact the pilot program after contentious debate for and against LPRs. Now the council has decided to hold off voting on further use of LPRs. They're taking time to take a deeper look at the data compiled by the Oversight Board. And now that the numbers are in, what can we learn when we examine what was found from the pilot program? What is the next step? My next guests are here to break down the numbers. Dylan DePriest is a data analyst for the Metro Nashville Community Oversight Board. And Mark Wynn is a COB board member and former police officer. Dylan, Mark, thank you both for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having us. Thank, thank you. Okay, so, you know, I, I really want listeners who may not be familiar with license plate readers or LPRs to understand how they work. Mark, can you explain what LPRs do and what their intended purpose is? Well, and, and Dylan can, can help with this as well. Uh, license plate readers have been around for a while now. I think we first started seeing them in the country about 15 years ago. And what they do is they just gather the image of a license plate and compare it to a database of of uh, stolen vehicles, you know, missing persons, amber alerts, things like that. Uh, it's 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 fairly old technology now. Um, 
but with that technology comes the need for transparency and how you use that technology. And that's, that's what I think we're here to talk about today. It's 24-hour surveillance, yeah, essentially. Right, right. So as a former officer, what's your take on LPRs? I like the technology. I think anytime you use a technology that helps you catch a criminal and protect the public, which is what your job is, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. Uh, but and that, that's me as someone who's worked in law enforcement for over 40 years. I still do the work today. I work for IECP, which is the International Association of Chiefs of Police and the Justice Department. So I, I train police leaders around the country over issues like this, and public confidence is, is, is critical. Um, you have to have transparency in policing. It's not a suggestion. It's a necessity. Mm. With this issue, we have to be sure that we don't violate someone's First Amendment rights. And your First Amendment rights are freedom to assemble, freedom to leave your house, go to your church, go to your therapist, you know, associate with people you don't want anybody else to know you're associating with. That's the First Amendment rights. And LPRs, they just, what they do is they gather uh, information about movement of people. How do they determine which license plates to read? Or does everybody getting their license plate read? Well, every, every, for the system is set up, my understanding, and Dylan can, can maybe add to this, uh, it, it gathers that license plate and digitalizes it, and then it compares it to a, a, a bigger database on of, of tags of interest. And again, I think it's a good technology, but um, that's me. I'm not I'm not the community. The community has a right to see transparent, you know, operations of police day in and day out because, you know, the the the, the public trust, uh, once you lose it in policing, it's hard to get back. Mm-hmm. So we have to always continue to explain to the public why these things are done and what are the positive and negative impacts on, on, on the public when police use them some sort of... Uh, surveillance technique. Dylan, Dylan, did did Mark pretty much get the operational aspect of the LPRs right? Absolutely. So the one thing I would add to that is MNPD is using one specific law enforcement database uh, through these LPRs, the NCIC, which is the National um, Crime Information Center. So it compiles law enforcement data from state, local, tribal, regional, and federal law enforcement databases uh, for all sorts of things like warrants, sex offender registries, amber and silver alerts, missing persons, stolen vehicles. So it's a whole wide range of information that's stored in these databases that LPRs are constantly cross-checking whenever they see a license plate. Okay, so you were responsible for compiling the data in the report. Before we get to the findings, I want to know about MNPD's protocol for using the LPRs. What's, what is the process? Um, so the process for using these LPRs, um, basically what will happen is MNPD was required to equitably distribute them throughout Nashville. Uh, and then once they actually started getting reads and getting informations, what happens is whenever an LPR reads a license plate going through it, if that gets cross-examined through the NCIC and it results in a hit, then at least two MNPD officers who are trained in LPR technology have to physically verify it, that it's a verified hit. And then they send it to the LPR program administrator, who then also physically verifies it. Once all three of those conditions have been met, 
It is then sent out to dispatch uh, for law enforcement action. So there's a decent amount of steps that actually go into the follow through from when a car actually gets its license plate read versus when enforcement actually could happen if it's a verified hit. Well, tell me this. How were you mentioned that they were mandated to be equally distributed throughout the city? How were they like where were they placed around the city? Yeah. So. Basically, MNPD um, split Nashville into four different quadrants based on uh, compass rows directions, so north, south, east, and west. Uh, and from there, they said that they distributed them based on crime hotspots um, or policing hotspots. But what we've seen through the data is that predominantly all the LPRs were placed in overwhelmingly non-white and low-income areas. In all four quadrants of the city? Yes. Why did they decide to do it this way? Was it because of the policing hotspots reason? Uh, that's what we've been told. So at the um, Public Safety and Transport Council meeting on August 1st, um, in their presentation, that is what MNPD listed as their reason for why they were placed there. So what were the numbers for each of the various quadrants? Yes. So I actually have the full report here as well, if you all want to look at it. But what we've seen is throughout the pilot program, there were about 1,300 verified hits across all four quadrants. And roughly about 43% of those all took place in one quadrant specifically, which was quadrant A, which covers parts of North Nashville, East Nashville, and Madison. Mm -hmm. All right. So what does that tell us about the hits and how the hits were acted upon? Yeah. So that tells us that predominantly... These this LPR activity is also taking place in these concentrated areas um, with, again, about 43 percent of hits taking place in this quadrant A. However, when we look at law enforcement action, so the follow through from these verified hits, we see this disproportionate uh, distribution increase even further and roughly about 70 to 75 percent of all the law enforcement action from LPRs also took place in Quadrant A. What was MNPD's reasoning for why Quadrant A got so much more follow-up action than any other quadrant? So the reason that uh, we got was that because the LPRs were more concentrated in Quadrant A, they were able to establish direction of travel better, um, is what we've been told. And... You know, I can only speculate on why, you know, certain verified hits were follow th followed through versus why others weren't, since I don't, you know, I'm not the one in that chair making those decisions. But, you know, I would stress that the reason why so many of them were concentrated in this one area to which they were able to follow these directions of travels better in this quadrant, you know should be examined further. You know, Mark, you're a former police officer, so, you know, I know you're not making the decision, but take me through a little bit of the institutional thinking real quick and help us break this down. If there are hits in all of the quadrants in MNPD, why are they really focusing on this one area in quadrant A? Uh, I can only speculate. Uh, it's flow of traffic. It's um, number of calls officers respond to. It's reports of crime. Um, you know, crime analysis is 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 not a real exact science. I mean, you you have to constantly review day in day out 
crime trends. You have to manage that with uh, staffing and patrol. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it. I don't know exactly why. I mean, I, but here's the thing. The bottom line for me is, as, as a member of the oversight board, uh, someone in oversight or representative oversight needs to be in these conversations when these decisions are made, where the, the cameras are placed, uh, you know, the, the methods, the protocol, the policy, um, because the oversight board is the voice of the community. It's really an opportunity for the community to say, okay, we'll, we'll use your technology. We, we agree that, that it's a good thing to have, but we want oversight to make sure there's no discrimination, there's no bias, there's no prejudice, there's no adverse impact on the community that it's supposed to protect. Um, where the cameras are placed, that's up to the police department uh, to explain to, to the, the community why and where they place these instruments. All right. So the LPRs, they're gathering information, every car that passes right. and that it captures. The data has to go somewhere. Where, Dylan, where, where does NPD, MNPD, pardon me, where do they house the data that they get from the LPRs? So that's a fantastic question. MNPD actually doesn't house the data. So whichever vendor the LPR cameras are through own the data and house the data. What type of security problems could potentially, that could that cause potentially? That's a fantastic question as well. Um, it depends. We've seen in other cities that vendors have shared information about, say, undocumented, immig undocumented immigrants with ICE. There's cons real concerns, especially about um, folks traveling for abortions, especially in response to Roe versus Wade and mm -hmm. certain states you know, abolishing or banning um, reproductive health justice. So there's a lot of concerns about, you know, what could happen if any of this data was leaked or shared or even sold. Because um, you can learn a lot about someone from their traveling history, where they're going, when they're going. Are there any laws on the books that prevent these vendors from sharing or selling the data that they capture? It absolutely depends on the vendor. Some have a lot stricter protocols and some have a lot looser protocols. Flock Safety, for example, uh, is one of the potential vendors that at least I've seen with my own eyes that MNPD has put in the city. Uh, and that one tends to have higher security. I believe that might be the only vendor, too, where uh, MNPD actually would be the arbiters over that data. As uh, Well, Mark, as a member of the Community Oversight Board, is this something that you're going to kind of ask that, that MNPD consider going to a vendor with much tighter and higher security protocols, even having MNPD house them? Well, I'll leave that to the chair of the board uh, and the director of the board to, uh, to make those recommendations. Um, you know, we, we just want... Um, transparency. This is this is what's required for the oversight board to make sure that whatever decisions they make that impact you know the, a person's basic civil right, it is is, is protected. Um, law enforcement though has always dealt with since a computerized age data. There's requirements for law enforcement when they collect data. There's requirements on who uses the data. The National Crime Information Center, which connects Nashville to all other crime computer systems in the country, there's a requirement on who can release it. They keep logs. They keep you know, they keep databases on the database uh, access. So 
this is not something that's foreign to police as well. I mean, they, they have to guard that information by law. If, if they don't, then the federal government steps in and says, wait a minute. Mm. You've just violated the civil rights of your citizens by releasing information that shouldn't be released. Yeah, I, I hate to think that my iPhone is more secure than this data that the city is using. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about the Community Oversight Board's report on the city's pilot program for license plate readers with Dylan DePriest and Mark Wynn. You can tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville, like this one that we got from J Dub, who says that, quote, the number of people driving around with open warrants. I don't know why you wouldn't have more license plate readers. Mark, well, what do you think about increasing the use of LPRs? Well, I don't know how to answer that. I, I know that um, anything you can do to aid the police in public safety is a good thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, outstanding warrants are always a problem for police departments. Um, it's justice denied for the victims who have outstanding warrants on offenders. Uh, anytime there's a system that helps, I'm I'm all for that. Uh I, I have no way of gauging the the numbers of systems, um, where they're placed. Again, that's something that uh, you know we depend on the police department to to to, you know, to tell us as a community and an oversight board. Well, Metro Council is going to take their time to kind of look over these numbers. You know, Dylan, what do you want them to be paying special attention to as they review? I really want them to pay special attention to again where the predominant activity and locations of these LPRs are. I think like Mark was saying, LPRs can be, you know, an effective tool for helping MNPD, you know, fight crime and catch folks who have open warrants, but whenever we talk about tools that are also able are able to be used for surveillance, especially you know, depending on where they're located. I think there's a lot of rocky areas that we need to be sure, you know, we can explore further. Have you looked at LP, the use of LPRs in other cities? Yes. What'd you, what'd you find there? So for what it's worth, uh, MNPD, credit where credit is due, has released a draft policy of their pilot program Uh, And their policy compared to other cities is stronger than most other cities. That's a good note. Mm -hmm. Where could they get better? I think really Mark hit the nail on the head right from the beginning is there needs to be more transparency. Um, They had a requirement at the very beginning to distribute these equitably and, you know, depending on what your definition of equity is, it might not meet everyone's decision, certainly not those who live in the communities that these are predominantly placed around. So I think involving more community voices, making sure that more information is being shared with the public, I think is what I would personally like to see more of. Now, does more data exist that you haven't had a chance to look at? Oh, absolutely. Um, I was able to make these reports almost entirely from publicly available data on LPRs. However, from MNPD's data dashboard where I got this information from the full six months of the program, for the full six months, I was told from this dashboard that there were 63 arrests. Mm. However, when MNPD presented to council on August 1st, they said there was 119. Mm. So nearly double what was publicly released. So personally, I would like to know, you know, exactly what else might not have been shared on this public dashboard. Okay, so based on what you have been able to study, do you have recommendations on how to improve the use of LPRs 
so that discriminatory practices are eliminated. Yes. I think, at least in terms of what I would consider equitable, I think it would be that anyone, no matter what area of Nashville you live in, no matter what percentage of your community is high income, low income, black, white, Hispanic, uh, you know, et cetera, that you have an equal chance of driving through a license plate readers. Dylan DePriest is a data analyst for the Metro Nashville Community Oversight Board. Dylan, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. Mark Wynn is going to stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about license plate readers and learn about the concerns they bring for some community members. Do you have concerns about LPRs? You can tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kalile Colonna, and this is Nashville. The Community Oversight Board's report on the city's pilot program for license plate readers has been released. Now, before the break, we learned about some of the data and what it means. Now, let's get to perspective from some community members who have concerns about the program. Luis Mata is a policy coordinator for the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition, or TURC. Luis, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And Reverend Davey Tucker Jr. is pastor of Beach Creek Missionary Baptist Church and the president of the International Ministers Fellowship. He's also a part of our show about LPRs last year. Reverend, thank you for joining us. Welcome back. Thank you. Okay, so we reached out to MNPD to be a part of the conversation, but they could not be here with us today. So, you know, we heard about the breakdown of the data compiled from the COB's report. Luis, what's your reaction to what was discussed? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, plain and simple, our city works best when we all have opportunities to feel safe and and to participate, right? And what we know is that for for months, for for years now, we've been saying that massive data gathering and excessive surveillance practices like license plate readers only serve to undermine the rights of citizens and non-citizens, right? All of us in the community and and only serve to erode uh, that trust and and quite frankly, what what we heard from from Dylan Mark right was that we've seen from the report that um, it's disproportionately targeting Black and Brown communities. Reverend Tucker, what's your reaction? Um, very very similar. Uh, I'm also the executive director of the Metro Human Relations Commission, which has a interest in this. In that, uh, our goal is to help uh, promote and protect the safety, health, security, peace, and general welfare of all Nashvilleians. And um, I was at the council debate, and I heard what the council said, and MMPD said that they would not place them in uh, overwhelming areas of people of color or even by class of poor people. But it turns out that that did not happen. And so it's concerning in that the technology is neither good nor bad. It's just the technology. And as um, Mr. Wynn had said earlier, it's been around for quite a while. But how are we using it? Um, initially for me, you have uh, major intersections such as uh, I-65 down at Brentwood. 
going either way, whole bunch of traffic, try getting in and out of Green Hills if you just need cars. But to leave from where my church is and travel on Trinity Lane to Gallatin Road and to run through three of them, that's a bit concerning. Is that, I know trust is a big issue between police and uh, black and brown communities. Mark mentioned that earlier. Does that further erode your trust? Yes, and I think Mark is dead on in that um, transparency is necessary to develop trust. You can claim to have trust, and the minute something happens, the community will let you know. The overwhelming vote for the COB was a statement of if it if it if it was not a statement of a lack of trust, it was at least a concern about trust. And mm. that the city overwhelmingly said, "Yes, we need somebody to look over what you do." Now, Louise, talk to me about some of the specific concerns from the immigrant community when it comes to LPRs. Yeah, absolutely. So for us, you know, we've been extremely outspoken about this for years because we know firsthand. Uh, that federal immigration enforcement agencies will stop at nothing to expand their data gathering, right? And their surveillance of our communities, our immigrant and refugee communities. Uh, we've seen countless examples of immigration and customs enforcement, or also known as ICE, uh, using these infrastructures to track our communities, right? Whether that's uh, tracking where we live, where we work, where we travel. Uh, we know that. Um, you know, it's these these systems have been disproportionately used to and weaponized to to harm our communities and, and putting them at risk of the consequences of not only the criminal legal system but the uh, the deportation system and, and and putting our people into the deportation pipeline um, and 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 that's the reality, right? It's that we don't know what happens after these infrastructures are put in place, right? Um, especially given. Um, the fact that, you know, going back to, to that trust and that transparency part, um, you know, the, the, there's there's a lot of questions still in the air and, and there's no safeguards. Uh, there's no restrictions that could possibly stop ICE from accessing the data. And that's what we have been for years now trying to make clear, right, that, that even though this. Uh, well, I, I understand that last August, the Metro Council passed legislation that restricts Metro's ability to use data from LPRs to assist with immigration enforcement. Exactly. And, and that, you know, what, what I was getting at was the fact that uh, no safeguards or restrictions, uh, you know, from council uh, uh, will stop ICE, whether that's through the subpoena of the records directly or, you know, as um, the conversation earlier, what, what Dylan was talking about um the, the vendors, right? And that's primarily how we've seen that um, that connection with ICE, right, is is through those vendors and through the third-party companies uh, is, is how they sweep up and collect that massive uh, quantity of, of, of data and indiscriminate and unverified um, information with, uh, you know, public, little to no public scrutiny or accountability. Now, Community Oversight Board member and former police officer Mark Wynn is still with us. Thank you again, yeah, Mark, you. for being here. Now, you're in favor of LPRs, yes. but un only under the condition that there's transparency <clears throat> from Metro Nashville Police Department. Luis is talking about a federal agency, ICE, right. coming in and commandeering that data. Does that raise concerns for you? No, let me tell you, I, I, I spent a lot of time around the country training police um, and 
interpersonal violence crimes. And one of the things that's a concern is that when you have a stereotype or a bias against an undocumented immigrant, it reflects in their reporting. And and, I, and here's how the impact is. Say I'm a uh, undocumented immigrant woman in Houston, and I know that if I report, I'll be deported, and I'm raped, and I can't report that, then that crime goes unpunished, and then the rapist goes on to rape other women. So you can see how the impact of the public view on any population has. So all that's weighed out by any citizen before they call the police. Can I trust the police if I call them? What's the positive and negative impacts of calling the police? And, and when I when I do, will they perform the way they should? That's just smart for the victim to consider. Uh, so if we do anything that puts a restriction on the crime victim from reporting to police, we're putting the public at more at risk, and we're putting our officers at risk as well. So public trust is is incredibly important, especially when you've got a context of historical trauma from communities that have been over-policed and underprotected all over the United States, not just here in Nashville. I wonder how difficult is it for, let's say, immigrant communities to develop that trust? Let's just say... When, what, what Dylan painted was that there's one vendor that Metro Nashville Police Department can work with where Metro MNPD himself, themselves house the data. But this is a federal agency we're talking about. They can still come in and grab this data, right, if they want. Well, I'm not an authority on the, the ability of the federal government to, to data mine you know, uh, data from local police departments. I, I will say this, that... Um, this is a topic of discussion not only in local and state police, but in federal law enforcement as well. Again, the work I do at IACP, um, back in, I'll give you an example. Back in 2009, when the technology was first starting to take off around the country, IACP produced a report on this technology called Privacy Impacts Assessments Report for the Utilization of License Plate Readers, which they looked at the impact on the community and the basic civil rights of the community. So at the very beginning, they said, we understand this technology is, a, is going to be a plus for us in policing, but it, you cannot use a technology that deteriorates the basic civil rights of the citizens. As I said earlier, the, the one that comes up most often is your First Amendment rights. You can't practice basically First Amendment rights unless you move around and you move around in a car. And if somebody's surveilling you night and day when you haven't done anything at all, that's a concern for that citizen. So the Oversight Board has a duty, I think, to speak for the citizens to power, which is the police department, which is the council, which is the mayor's office, and say, look, we understand you want technology catch crooks, so do we. But we're getting caught in this net as well, and we need to understand what that means to us and how you view us as citizens when we drive through your LPRs. That's just, that's just reasonable. And I think the city is, is can do that. I think the police department's up for it. We've got a great police department. But that doesn't mean we have to stop oversight. Reverend Tucker, what are your specific concerns with the LPRs? Transparency and uh, disproportionate use. Um, for me, it's, I think that management has to, you can't hide behind that, that, that wasn't my intent. You can do something and not have the intent, but the impact suggests something else. So good leadership is not only going to take into account why I started it, impact, 
um, excuse me, intent. But then after I'm doing it, what is the impact? And be able to assess that in a way that your policies take into account the historical trauma and distrust of communities of color with over-policing. And I think that if you can do that, you create a department that the community can trust and that we're able to tolerate a lot of things for general safety. We just are. Uh, most people will give a officer a break for a mistake if it can be understood in the context of the very dangerous job that they have. Uh, I've watched the COB uh, through multiple cases exonerate an officer with, with what may look like bad behavior on the surface. But when you look at the context of that incident, that, that that's one of the reasons that I always felt that the COB was such a good apparatus for us to have. But when we don't have checks and balances on policing, it only creates trouble in other areas of our society also. We got a tweet from Nicole Williams. Question for Mark Wynn. MNPD did not consult the COB at all when developing the pilot program. Why would we expect them to consult the COB if the council gives them the green light for full implementation? Well, look, I, I think um, you, you don't just stop because someone didn't include you in a meeting in the formulation of a protocol or policy. I'm, I'm one of the people who thinks that if you're looking for change, it's gentle pressure relentlessly applied. Mm-hmm. And I think the COB, and I, I'm sure that Director Fitcher and all the other board members feel the same way, we've got to be you know, vigilant and say, okay, we weren't included, which I, as I remember when we had the meeting on this, I said, I think it's a mistake not to include the stakeholders. And, and there's the biggest stakeholder in this conversation is the community, not just the community, your community, my community, our community. Mm-hmm. And for us to have respect and, and trust in the system, whether it's the sheriff or the police or the courts, We've got to be. Uh, we've got to have a voice in that. So I, this is this is an ongoing conversation, and my hope is that eventually, that the the community's oversight or the mayor's oversight, whichever you want to call it, will be in those meetings when they make these decisions that have a direct impact on the citizens in this city. It goes back to the trust that Reverend Tucker was talking about. Now, Luis, do you feel like immigrants communities? Do you feel like they've been included in the conversation? I don't think that they've been included. And I think that it goes back to to that transparency, transparency part of, of, you know, the community input and, and equitably uh, disseminating the information to our communities. Right. And I think I think we can all agree. Right. That we all deserve safety. Right. And, and, and but the bottom line is that public safety includes the safety of all of us. Right. Not just some. Uh, and black and brown communities have been very clear that license plate readers are not public safety for us, right? So if, if this is truly about the safety of our communities, then it would prioritize the needs of of all communities and and center the voices of all people, immigrants, refugees, black, brown, uh, who are disproportionately going to be harmed by this infrastructure. And when we first did the show on a topic last year, we were joined by Gina Coleman from the Hayes Park Neighborhood Association. She told Metro Council earlier this month she and her neighbors raised money to buy LPRs in response to a spike in violent crime in 2020. Let's listen to her comments. 
We had a big drug bust. We had shootings. We had neighbors whose uh, car windows was being shot out. We had screen doors that were being shot out, houses that was being shot into, innocent people being affected. And we came to you asking for your support for the LPR cameras that we were willing to pay for. I mean, there, Gina makes it pretty clear that Nashville residents want, some Nashville residents want LPRs. And these are Nashville residents who are members of the black and brown communities we're talking about. What they want is a reduction in crime in their neighborhoods. I think we all can agree on that. If LPRs can be used properly to help to that goal, why not use them? Reverend Tucker. I think that that's the question that goes back that, again, for me, is context. Uh, the council, I believe, voted them down three times. This was a consolation prize for the six-year, for the six-month pilot. Um, while I can understand that their placement in certain areas for a particular period of time may be okay, but there ought to be a standing understanding uh, there will be a standing agreement between the community and the police. This is how they will be used. When issues show up, this is how we will resolve them. I've heard folks say, well, uh, uh, disproportionate doesn't mean discrimination. Well, yada, yada, yada. Um, again, the historical over-policing of black and brown communities has to be considered in any present and future policing philosophies. You have to take that into account. Uh, all folks want safe communities, but at what cost? So what are the alternatives to license plate readers that will help bring about these safe communities for all of us? Well, I think sometimes we have to uh, look at public safety beyond policing. I think you look anywhere around the world Abject poverty always has more violence. There's more exploitation. Um, uh, governmental agencies around the world tolerate more things in poor communities than are tolerated in richer communities. So we can, on how we deal with poverty, actually make public safety better. So I, it's it's a both and type proposition. Uh, public safety must be more than policing. Luis, do you have alternatives in mind? Yeah, I think uh, Reverend Tucker said it perfectly, right? I, I think that we need to expand our view of, of, of what public safety means. And then as I was mentioning earlier, right, public safety means safety for all of us, right? And I think that it, it, it begins by by making real and 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 solid investments uh, for for our communities, right? Community services, community uh, resources, support. Um, that doesn't include additional and, and mass surveillance. Mark, you know, pretty soon, Metro Council is going to be coming to a decision and a vote mm -hmm. on whether we, we keep these things around permanently. What do you want them to be considering? Well, there's got to be a strong auditing a system in place. I mean, that, and that's just not me. That's that's the the what's the, considered the gold standard in police management. You know, in our country, is you implement a process and then you audit it to see the impacts on the community. 
Uh, there's got to be a forum for the community to say, we don't want this system or we want this system. The police have to justify it. Uh, and, I, and, and look, I don't think that anybody thinks that we're asking the police to divulge secret information about ongoing criminal investigations. They can't do that. I worked in homicide for years. There's certain things you cannot tell the public. But this is different because it impacts everybody who moves about in public. So there's got to be an auditing system there. And I look, this is this is me. I've worked on both sides of this. Um, I'm, you know, I'm I'm in favor of the police. I think we've got a great police department. But uh, in order for us to keep that great police department, the public has to trust that agency, which means someone from oversight or someone in the community has to take a look at all these things the police do that has an impact on day to day life in this city. Now, Reverend Tucker, this we know that this is Metro Council's decision to make, but we've got a mayoral runoff coming up. They definitely can influence that decision and Metro Council comes up. What do you want the mayoral candidates, Freddie O'Connell and Alice Rowley, to be considering as we move forward with this? To move past the political rhetoric that shows up during um, election time, uh, even the false narrative that Nashville is a crime-ridden city, through our through the own documentation, it's actually lower than it has been in other times in our history. So we have to tell the truth about what the situation is. Are there issues of crime? Yes, there are. Uh, a great example is the proliferation of the guns that are showing up amongst juveniles. The answer is not going to be locking up juveniles with guns when they know that if I hit 10 cars, I'm subject to get four guns. The state has a responsibility in that, of making guns so easy to get their hands on. And, and, and so in the same way, community policing has to start with the community, sharing with the police their concerns and the police seriously listening to them. I want to thank my guests, Reverend Davey Tucker Jr. with Creek Missionary Baptist Church, Luis Mata with Turk, and Mark Wynn with the Community Oversight Board. Thanks to you all for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Rose Gilbert. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Elizabeth Burton handled the live tweeting for today. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.